0: Welcome to Rocket Talk, 4.com Podcast. I'm Justin Landon, and I have with me tonight author Andrea Phillips. Andrea is a transmedia game designer and writer. She published a creator's guide to transmedia storytelling in 2012, and in 2013 successfully funded a project on Kickstarter called The Daring Adventures of Captain Lucy Smokehart. Her newest project is a novel called Revision, which is out, I believe, this week. Welcome. Hi. Is it Hi. actually out this week, like on Tuesday?
1: It's out May 5. May, is that this uh, week?
0: It's like the week after next week. So what people don't know is this is actually your second appearance on Rocket Talk yeah, because you are the only, along with uh, Chuck Wendig, who was also on that show, you were the only show ever lost uh, to the whims of the internet that we didn't, weren't able to bring that show to life.
1: I, I have a long history of being controversial. You, you may not know this, but I, I've been condemned by NASA.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: No, legitimately, uh, I did an alternate reality game many years ago for the film 2012, um, and NASA didn't like it very much, <laughs> because it was, I guess, spreading bad science and inciting panic that the world was going to end in the year 2012. So no, legit, I've, I've totally seriously been condemned by NASA.
0: Wow, for bad science.
1: For bad science.
0: Um, I have to be, I think, wasn't John Cusack in that movie?
1: He was. He was. He was in that movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that movie did very well, did it?
1: Woody Allen. I. You know what? I don't even remember. It was not...
0: You won a lot of awards, though, for the game.
1: I I won a couple of awards for the game. Um, It's not my most award-winningest game. Um, I actually did most of the design while I was sick with the swine flu. So it's really not my best work ever. Um, But we did actually a pretty good job, I think, considering. And then... um... The movie, the movie shown in places. It was a, a popcorn effects movie, you know, and, and it was very good at that. So well, it was
0: very timely too. I mean, it obviously was capitalizing on the mass hysteria of the Mayan the, capital.
1: Yeah, the mass hysteria that had already existed <laughs> before anyone decided to make a movie about it. Yeah. Have you
0: ever wondered why nobody made like the seminal Y two K movie, like really capitalizing on the fear of Y two K? Anybody? I, I don't think that happened.
1: I don't think there was such a movie, and I think it's because it would have been really hard to uh, to, to commit to film. I guess like it's really easy to imagine volcanoes and earthquakes, but I, I guess all of the computers shutting down isn't very cinematic.
0: Well, I think maybe they did make it. It's called I think it's called Maximum Overdrive with Emilio Estevez, where mm-hmm. the com- where like all the machines come alive. Is, I think that ha- that's a movie.
1: And is it? Is yeah, it a movie? Are you yeah, sure? Yeah,
0: and like the semi trucks like come alive and they try to mow people down. And so maybe you could have just done it where like Y two K comes. All, it doesn't shut down computers. It makes them sentient. And then or just...
1: maybe maybe that's what Mad Max is all about. Maybe that's post Y two K.
0: <laughs> that would be great if that ended up being the plot MacGuffin that brought on
1: yeah, yeah. Mad
0: Max. I'd be into that. I, I have to ask uh, because as i was reading your bio and you and i have talked a lot and i have to admit though the whole i still don't really understand transmedia <laughs> is that <laughs> am i am i like a bad modern uh, yeah. culture consumer that i don't understand it
1: nobody nobody understands nobody does so for a long time, um, transmedia was was kind of a super hot buzzword in, in Hollywood and, and even in publishing to some extent. Uh it's it's actually not such a hot buzzword anymore. But the idea was aggressive intertextuality, not just making a franchise where you have the same world and you have movies and TV shows and you know tie-in novels, but this idea that the things that happened in each other uh affected the other elements. So you're seeing the the Marvel Cinematic Universe doing a ton of transmedia work right now, because you see somebody walk off stage in you know an Avengers film, and then they walk on stage in Agents of Shield in you know the next scene of their life, uh, and you have to be following all of the pieces to build a complete idea of the story. So this this idea that taking all of the pieces gives you more information than you would have had from just watching one piece. It's kind of the idea of transmedia, this, this idea of collection. Intertextuality is the, the academic fancy-schmancy word for it.
0: So I totally dig it in an academic sense, but I don't know that I personally have ever been captured by it. You know, like where I felt that maybe it's because I'm in a, like a weird place in my life like to want to do that. The end game of transmedia is to create the fan who desperately wants to consume every piece of minutiae and really see the complete picture, you know, they want to get the video game, they want to, I don't, I think I'm too lazy for that.
1: I mean, that's fair. A lot of people are too lazy for it. Uh, I mean, at this point in my life, I'm mostly too lazy for it too. Uh, But the sort of, the sort of opposite end of it, besides the sort of big franchise, you know, movies and and TV shows and so on, there's the smaller alternate reality game end of it, where instead of making a bunch of big stories that cost a lot of money you make you know one story that happens to be told in a bunch of little pieces um so an example of that might be this this little goofy project i did called the mckinnon account where you get a story told to you over the course of the morning in emails and text messages um because you have to get all of those little pieces to know what the story is right all of the emails all of the texts um and then it's, it's a, a sort of a magical thing if it's done really well, because it's like the story is coming to life around you. It's, it's not just breaking the fourth wall, but kind of removing it so that the story is is true for you. It's happening to you, but not in a weird LARPy sense where you're pretending to be someone you're gonna not. I just going to bring up LARPing. I, was I know, it's like I know. I mean, I, I actually, I, I respect LARPing really quite a lot, but it asks a lot of you, and not everyone who would be interested in that kind of immersive story is super interested in LARPing and becoming someone completely different. So... I get
0: it. It sounds like one of those things that when it works, it like really, really works.
1: When it works, it's like lightning in a bottle. And it's an incredible, like almost life-changing experience. Um, I mean, I I, I say this, that sounds really dumb. But the fact of the matter is I'm here talking to you even today. The only reason anybody cares who I am um, is because I've been doing this work because of a marketing campaign I participated in. Low these 13, 14 years ago uh, for the film AI back in the day Uh, and it literally changed the course of my life because I participated in this this sort of game that was an extension of the film uh, and I was like I want to do this, this is amazing I have to figure out how to make more of this happen Mm -hmm. Um, And not just me either. I I have, you know, a a dozen peers who did similar things, who kind of took a hard left after that experience and and went on to, you know, work in Hollywood and work in the BBC and and on and on.
0: That's interesting. It does seem like the the future of this is the connection between sort of prose and video games, at least for science fiction and fantasy. That seems to be where it's happening a lot is
1: yeah like
0: world of warcraft and then the novels and then the you know the app
1: because there's only so much backstory you can fit into a video game yeah right yeah you mean all of those journal articles and codexes and whatnot but when you sit down at a console you don't necessarily want to be spending that time with the controller in your hand reading things
0: yeah no it makes perfect sense it totally does i and uh well, I just I just got into the new Hearthstone app, which is like the World of Warcraft card game. Oh,
1: okay. How do you like it?
0: It's it's cool. I was like a huge World of Warcraft fanboy before I got married, um, <laughs> which everybody, as everybody as regular listeners listeners of this show know, um, I gave up Warcraft for marriage. But uh, I could imagine having that. You know, it's got on your on your phone, on your you know, your computer. I could totally see myself reading Warcraft novels if I was super into the game. I mean, yeah, it, it, and and Warcraft at its best completely takes over your life, which is, I guess, sort of the very nature of that transmedia experience.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's basically it. Uh, after after the AI experience and back in the day, we were looking back over the last several months of our lives and thinking. And I say we, I mean, the, the community of players. We we looked back over it and and thought to ourselves, what happened here? Uh, and we had ethical concerns about future designers making sure not to eat their players lives like this. Maybe moderate the volume of content so that it's not possible for someone to put in so much time that they're jeopardizing their, you know, their, their relationships or their grades. Uh, Maybe, maybe there are more, more responsible ways to, to entertain people. Keep
0: keep the crack out of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Keep the crack out of it.
0: You've got this transmedia background, but now you are writing novels as well, Uh and your newest novel, Revision, is out uh, very soon. We'll preface this by saying, on this show, although I bring people on whose books are soon to be out, we don't often <laughs> always talk about the book itself, Uh but this time I, I enjoyed this book so much and it had me thinking in so many different directions, I am unabashedly going to talk about your book. <laughs> and... uh so before we get too deep into this, um, a lot of times I totally blow it by not actually telling anybody what the book is about until the end of the show. So let's <laughs> let's just start off with you telling us basically what the book's about.
1: Uh, the book is, the, the high level is uh, the wiki where your edits come true. Sort of an updating of the classic, you know, the book where what you write comes true. Uh, and it's it's about sort of what it's like to be a person in today's society and it's about bad relationships and it's about technology and startup culture and and kind of how much i hate that um and uh, i guess people are saying it's about sort of trust and loyalty um yeah it's it's a book it's about things it's funny too right it's funny
0: it is funny and so <laughs> i think i think the easiest way to talk about the book is really just to describe the first chapter which is basically Your protagonist,
1: Mira, 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 Mira Newton,
0: Mira gets uh, dumped by her boyfriend, Benji or Benjamin. And Mm -hmm. he is the lead developer, essentially, at a wiki called Verity. And to get revenge on him, his girlfriend logs into his Verity account and changes his entry to say that he recently was engaged to Mira Newton and suddenly he shows back up at her house and proposes. Yes. And so that is the premise and then sort of shenanigans ensue, right?
1: Shenanigans, <laughs> all kinds of shenanigans ensue. It would be a lousy book without shenanigans.
0: I think the one reaction I had upon reading the book and finishing it was and it is it is for all intents and purposes what I would it's kind of what I would describe as social science fiction uh, although hand-wavy science fiction, but social So hand-wavy. But social science fiction or or even social urban science fantasy um but it it asks the question i think of you posit this wiki that really becomes true but then i can't tell you how many times over the last i don't know five years like eddie murphy has been dead on twitter Mm -hmm. you know because somebody said it and next thing you know i i am telling all of my coworkers eddie murphy died and i mean if if eddie murphy didn't you know show back up a week later we would just all assume he was
1: dead T- T- you know what while I was writing this um, Michael Jackson died and there's a there's a part in the book where I, I kind of make a, a slight reference to this um, you know a celebrity may or may not have died may or may not have overdosed may or may not have been in a hospital and you don't know which way is true and you literally have no way of knowing um, if any of it is is verifiable if any of it is rumor. All you can do is kind of make a decision about who to trust about it. Um, Some sources are credible and maybe some sources aren't, but sometimes the source that's not credible turns out to be right. Um, And when Michael Jackson died, there was this sort of social media just disaster where everybody was convinced that, you know, the rumors were true and then that they were false. There was sort of this two hours of back and forth. Um, And then ultimately he was in fact dead and had been dead the whole time uh but this this got me really thinking about you know well what if what if his fate really was was in the balance and it depended on you know someone deciding whether it was true or not you know maybe maybe saying he was dead was enough to make it happen i don't know
0: well i think that's what makes this so powerful is because if you if you you, Minimize the few so if you look at Michael Jackson in the bigger sense, like, okay, eventually that's proven true or not true, but take it down to like a smaller scale, right? And somebody says on Twitter, so and so's a racist mm-hmm. that's that is now true. I mean, yeah. it may not actually be true, but there's no way to disprove it. And so the fact that it's been said on the internet, it's been put in a Wikipedia entry. And that's what I think is so fascinating about this book is like, yeah, you posit that somebody can really change the future by changing a wiki, but it's not that far-fetched.
1: I actually, I saw a photo going around just today on Twitter, uh, you know, a photo of a man. This man ran over my dog in his bicycle, helped me find him. And I looked at it and I'm like... That's, that's a terrible story. How do I know that any of it is true? How do I know that you're not like a crazy ex-wife who wants to find him for other, you know, nefarious reasons? Um, or, you know, an estranged relative? You have the instinct of wanting to help people who, who have these terrible stories, but you really have no way of knowing whether you're, you're helping, whether you're furthering the legitimate good cause that you're being told you're helping or something completely different and maybe really horrible.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the conversations you're having throughout the book is, is Verity, is this wiki that's capable of altering the future good?
1: Is it horrible? Is it yeah. good or
0: not? Is this a good thing or not? Uh, can it be used for good, or is it only going to be be a horrible thing? Yeah, and, and I guess then my question became, is social media uh, or or the all the other technologies that we have that control information flows, are they a force for good, or are they only going to devolve into sort of like a negative impact or negative force?
1: i think I think it's an unanswerable question. I think. They're, they're they're tools you know they're they're a force for chaos they allow us to do things in a different way than than they did before they're not inherently good or inherently bad. The people that use them can choose to do great things or choose to do horrible things um, and frankly both of them are going to happen with any given tool that you come up with you invent a hamburger and someone's going to find a way to make it horrible and someone's going to find a way to make it amazing. But you, you you can't control it. Nothing nothing is used for only good or bad purposes.
0: <laughs> I just, all I can think of right now is the McRib. <laughs> 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 I'm like clearly an example of the force of evil in you sandwich making.
1: The hamburger. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that was the sandwich. Was the hamburger was maybe not the best metaphor for that right. that particular purpose.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of leads into like another discussion. And you wrote a. a, a an article on this on Aiden Mower's uh, Hugo award-winning blog, A Dribble of Ink, mm-hmm. um, where you talked about technology in fiction and technology in science fiction and how we don't really do a very good job of actually representing sort of like modern technological concerns in our oh science my, fiction. Oh
1: my God. Where are all of the cell phones? Where are they? I mean, even in like far future spaceship driven uh, like sci-fi novels, at this point, they still don't have anything like a cell phone most of the time. I mean, unless I'm reading egregiously the wrong science fiction, which is which is possible. Um, but you you wind up with uh, the same social structures, the same basically the same culture with very small tweaks as existed 15, 20 years ago. Um, I I don't know. It kind of drives me crazy that we don't have cell phones like who takes a selfie in a sci-fi novel right nobody ever does i'm not sure i could name a single selfie driven sci-fi novel at this point but it's a thing that that especially that young people do that i do it's pretty common so why aren't our fiction characters doing these same things we do all the time i mean we have people eating in novels right they, they go to restaurants, they drive around, they do all of these sort of boring things as background that aren't technological. But we don't have people like playing video games in the background instead of, you know, sitting at a table and drinking coffee. Why aren't they, you know, bonding over a game of Mario Kart instead of that?
0: Oh, there, it does have, I, I totally agree with you. And actually, one of the ways I was selling your novel earlier today to Anna Grillo on the Fangirl Happy Hour podcast <laughs> was by saying that you actually fully embrace the cell phone in this novel with, like, and you don't casually get rid of it. This is, like, one of my biggest pet peeves, right, where they have cell phones and they're using them.
1: Except when it matters.
0: Right. But the plot hinges on the fact that they don't have service when shit hits yeah. the fan. <laughs> yeah. So um, I enjoyed the fact that, like, you know, your characters have full access to text messaging and they can communicate. And uh, do communicate with one another even you know even when the plot tension might be better if they didn't, but somehow you manage to create tension anyway
1: i mean it's a, it's a different set of tensions, isn't it? I mean and I did talk about this in the article in, in a dribble of ink, but there are entire ranges of of tension of, of uh, there's a different emotional texture that you can access when everyone has perfect knowledge of what's going on. Um, I, I, I think back, alas, I'm sorry, I, I think back to 9-11 um, and the hijackers, you know, and people calling from the planes and how awful and tragic that was. And if you get rid of your cell phones, you can't have that amazing, powerful moment in a story. Um, but it is amazing and powerful. And the truth is just having a cell phone doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. No matter what horrible thing is going on, merely being able to call someone doesn't make it go away.
0: Yeah, and I think you can really ramp up the tension by that person being fully aware of the predicament that they are in, right? Like, I don't think there's anything more powerful than that phone call from the plane. No, nine eleven, right? Like that is that the most...
1: that that utter helplessness, that that horrible feeling.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think it, I think when you can tap into that, it can be really powerful. Particularly because in fiction, now it resonates with us on another level. Because I think you're right that we live with cell phones today. And to Mm -hmm. imagine a time when I would be completely disconnected from the internet is kind of absurd.
1: Yeah. Unless you're on a cruise ship, like that's, and even then, if you're willing to pay a little bit of money, if it's important, you're going to pay to have the, the seat ashore. And still, even then, you're going to have the connection.
0: Yeah. You know, and I haven't been on a cruise. I went on a cruise for my honeymoon, which was what? Almost eight years ago. And I haven't been on one since. And, you know, even eight years ago, I was not on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I don't know that I would get on a cruise ship right now and give up.
1: I I have to tell you, I'm I'm planning a cruise in the in the distant future with my family, and it is really difficult for me to contemplate genuinely being a hundred percent disconnected for so long. But I, on the other hand, I have spent time being completely disconnected, sort of an in, in internet Shabbat from time to time over the weekend, um, and it's it's good for you to refocus on the the, the meat space around you from time to time. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think the lack of technology in science fiction is driven partially by this desire to sort of be timeless? That uh, like that we don't want to reference, say, Mario Kart or we don't want to reference um, selfies because it dates your book in a way that science yeah. fiction doesn't want to be dated?
1: I think, I think that's the reason no one wants to talk about Facebook. No one wants to talk about Twitter because a book that has MySpace in it already seems a little weird and off-putting but i think you can talk about some of the sweeping social changes that are that are happening without referencing you know specific brand names necessarily without talking about specific tools you don't have to say what model of a phone it is um, but if someone's you know sending text messages that's a, a a word a word? Is it a word or a phrase? It's a, a, a piece of terminology. It's a noun. An, a bad noun. Jargon. <laughs> and it's existed for what, 15, 20 years already. Right. So I think it's already stood enough of a test of time that it's not immediately dating.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. There's a, there's a book that I've kind of talked to you a little bit about called Love Minus 80 by Will McIntosh. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like one of the characters writes dating profiles online and uh, the other uh, character is this poor person, essentially, who's barely able to keep up with the technology flows. And so he's constantly chasing the ability to stay in the game, where mm-hmm. if you're not connected, you're not really a person. And uh, it's a book about, you know, all those things. And, and so but I think it th- those things really stand out, because they are so rare. Um, and I think that's why I latched on revision a little bit, because it does that it embraces uh, modernity uh, in a way that I just don't think, I think you nailed it when you said that science fiction often feels like it's five years old by the time it comes out. Um, yeah. And that's...
1: I mean, publishing is slow. So that's kind of an artifact of just the way that publishing works. But on the other hand, I, I talk about you know William Gibson and all of his Blue Ant books, which are dated in that the things that he talks about in those books are several years old. And and they still feel so fresh. They feel like a book that you can hardly believe is coming out today, because nobody talks about Twitter in a book.
0: And I think yeah. Neil Stevenson does that as well.
1: You know what? He he does. He does a great a great job of that.
0: Um, and it's interesting. The last month's episode or last week's episode of Rocket Talk was with uh, Sam Sykes and Delilah Dawson, and we talked about feast scenes in fantasy. Uh, and this this is going to be relevant. Just <laughs> stick with me here for a second. We Obviously. talked about feast scenes and. We got to the point where I was lamenting the fact that all of these finely tuned warriors that are in fantasy novels eat the fattiest, grossest food every time they sit down to eat at these feast scenes. Like none of them is ever sort of like concerned with the fact that like, you know, I need more lean meat in my diet to maintain my highly muscled physique. <laughs> and, <laughs> all all this goes to say that though, that like we don't, a lot of times our books just don't deal with real people shit. They really don't. And they sort of have a willful ignorance of it.
1: Um, do you know, one of the things that I that I do in this book that I'm, I'm quietly proud of is, uh, it, it's written in, 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 I would say, an aggressively feminine voice. And one of the things that happens in this book is a lot of casual comments about Mira's weight. Um, what it is, what it should be, whether she looks thin or not. Um and that's because that's kind of the background radiation of a woman's life. People are always talking about your body, right? Um, but you actually don't see that happen a lot in, in fiction, um, even though it's a thing that happens all the time.
0: Well, I think you nailed it, right? It's background.
1: It's it's interesting because when I, when I first started writing this book, I was intending to write something completely fluffy, um, you know, sort of fast-paced commercial, something that would sell – and and it winds up being really painfully honest about a lot of things, um, you know, the the weird bits of like internal racism that you maybe feel bad about, like the snap judgments that you make about people, and then you later find out that they're wrong, and uh, just I, I don't know the ways that people are bad without meaning to. Um,
0: well, I think a, yeah, a great example is your your I guess he's the antagonist, kind of the antagonist, which is. <laughs> Which is Benji and his relationship with Mira, you know, after she edits him to propose, like he's not a better human being as a result of this. Like he still yeah. doesn't, he treats her, well, pretty much like you would imagine a dude bro uh, tech startup, you know, executive would treat a coffee barista um, and like, he's not nice to her and he is constantly sort of talking down to her and asking her to, you know, go find something to do while he has important conversations.
1: I mean, he's, he's not a, he's not a great choice for a life partner and they really shouldn't be getting married. Um, but, but part of the things I was trying to do in this book is, is display someone who makes really terrible life choices, um. And, and and how the consequences of them sort of catch up with you over time. So one of those really lousy life choices that people really make all the time is being in kind of a lousy relationship with somebody who, you know, maybe doesn't see you as, as an intellectual equal. equal. Um, and I mean, it's, it's not like he's, you, you make him sound like he's unabashedly horrible the whole way through, but there are flashes of of kindness. You know, there's, there's a place where he's downloaded a game specifically for her and... You know, he takes care of her after horrible things happen in a couple of places. Um, So there's really something there. He has human feeling for her. He he genuinely does. It's just that he's got this sort of reflexive dismissiveness that he he can't see around. Um,
0: Yeah, I (laughs) I think it speaks back to that. And you're right. He's not he's not like this horrible person. He doesn't cheat on her. He doesn't like he doesn't beat her up. I mean, he's just sort of it's like unconscious sexism, really. Um, which again, when you talk about sort of looking at things that are typically sort of background radiation and, and pointing them out, I think you do a really good job of that. Like you're actually pointing out the things that are often glossed over because they're just just there. But Thank you. I think they become very obvious in the book as being problematic.
1: Really, very thoughtful of you to say.
0: Yeah, and her and her mom too, right? Like, oh, god, her mom.
1: <laughs> her mom is kind of horrible. Her mom is, I should say, her mom is based on not my mother and not my mother-in-law. No mother figure in my life is like this in, in any way whatsoever, um, but it is a dynamic I have seen between mothers and daughters um, that I have observed where um, the mother kind of wants the child to live up to being someone that the child isn't interested in being really. I mean, even as a parent, you kind of worry that that's who you are, (laughs) because you're making choices for your children all the time. And they may not be the choices that they would have chosen for themselves, but you really can't know until it's too late, Uh, when when they're younger, at least. When they're older, they tell you. Speaking of that idea,
0: though, um, hardly a spoiler. It's it's rather obvious from the get-go. Mira is actually an incredibly wealthy person. Uh, Her parents are extremely well off, and Mira is sort of trying to do her best to... Not live that way, and is trying to live on her own and away from that sort of sort of
1: <laughs> really, really badly. Yeah. The, the The problem is, and this is actually a recurring theme in 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 my work. There's there's this problem of of having good fortune and and not being able to turn away from it. This this sort of this sort of gift that is also a burden you can't put down, right? Um, and a lot of this is. Sort of a, a lifelong guilt that I have my, myself because um, when I was a little girl, I, I was very poor in a couple of places, you know, on, on public assistance and so on. But I also lived in the Philippine Islands for several years where we were very wealthy, even on an NCO salary, um, you know, and had a living housekeeper and then a different housekeeper for the weekends and gardeners and, and so on. Um, and so I have this perpetual feeling of not deserving the things that I have in life because I know how many people don't have them. and and so there's there's this idea that maybe you should refuse some of it and turn it away. But at the same time, you really can't walk away from all of the, I'll say it the privilege that you have in life. You can't just suddenly not be educated anymore. You can't just suddenly not be white or heterosexual anymore. Even if you're really unhappy with the fundamental unfairness that that delivers unto other people, it's just you're stuck with it, right? Um, And then all you can do is try and use that power to help people who aren't maybe like you and maybe don't have the same advantages as you have. Um, but it's, 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 you know, it's the, the white guilt, right? It's, it's yeah. terrible. It's horrible. Um, so
0: what's really interesting about that in the book is Mira essentially is trying to, to put down that privilege. Like she's, she's, trying, she's
1: trying really hard. She's trying really hard to, but she doesn't know how, frankly, she just doesn't know how to live in a different way than she was brought up. So even though she's trying, she screws it up.
0: Well but I think sort of part of the argument is that you can't just put it down like you yeah. it, it it is who you are and so you know I think at some point, perhaps the journey that she needed she needs to lead is to say that well, if I can't put it down, maybe I ought to do something with it that's halfway helpful to yeah. others instead of just because I think in in putting it down, I think you you give you sort of say that she's uh she's being incredibly selfish
1: exactly there's the, the great rabbi Maimonides, if i may go there there's the the famous saying that uh you're you're not required to complete the work of the world but neither are you at liberty to put it down and and that's what it is isn't it you don't have to fix all of the world but you should at least try to fix the little bits that you have the power to try to fix yeah Well. we'll you-
0: So let's talk a little bit about, I'm very curious about sort of where this whole thing began. Talked a little (laughs) bit about sort of the idea around the wiki and around how you you sort of see these things on social media come and go and how it it can affect that. But, I mean, that's a pretty relatively high concept idea to frame a novel around. So, I mean, take me a little bit from where you started to where you got to when this thing was done and ready to to go out.
1: Well, so I... I I will say rice fail was in full swing when I first started writing this book and I didn't mean to write anything that was, that was in in any way a, a response to that. Like I said, fluffy, I was going for fluffy. Um, but that discussion, um, which I internalized very, very much and learned a lot from hopefully, uh, wound up all over this book. So I was like, well, I, I really want this to be about a relationship between two women, um, Basically, that's the important relationship in this book. And then everything else is kind of window dressing. I mean, it's, it's, it's about Mira and Chandra, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's arguably, arguably this book is about Chandra and not about Mira at all, actually. Um, but so, so I, I went and I, I started writing um, interesting things that could happen with this technology right? Um, with this, uh, not even technology, but this hand wavy idea, interesting things that could happen. And you no, know, I wrote what became chapter 18. And I wrote what became chapter seven, all of these sort of interesting bits, um, completely out of order. Really, no sense of of narrative flow between them at all. Uh, and then I, I kind of sat down when I had something like you know forty, fifty thousand words to try and put in transitions and make them in order. And it kind of sucked because I hadn't learned about outlining and how great outlining is yet. And I had four chapters that wanted to be chapter three, and that doesn't work. It turns out. <laughs> um, no, it really it doesn't work. The pacing was terrible. Um, so I had to do a lot of rearranging and a lot of cutting and, uh, ultimately I, I think it, it recovered okay. But the first, you know, five chapters are still a little bit slower than I would have chosen. Um, and then the end is maybe a little bit faster than I would have chosen. Like I would have, I would have evened out the pacing just a little bit. Um, and like I wrote three different places where you could, you could explain it as Chandra explains to Mira what is going on, and I had to cut, you know, some of them completely, um, and, and then go back and, and try and figure out what Mira should know at different points in the book. Um, outlining is your friend. You should you should outline is what I'm saying. Outlining is much better. For for me anyway.
0: Actually, I didn't notice the five chapters in the beginning being a little slower than you. I, I thought they worked very well. The I do see maybe the ending being a little fast, um, <laughs> and I could see that stretching out, although. To stretch your ending out, you would have had to, I think you would have had to resolve some things that I think the novel is better for not resolving. Yeah. You know, with some yeah. of the relationships, you know, sort of leaving that open-ended question. I There was a time in my life where I was a reader that required things to be answered. Mm-hmm. But I, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more into the, like, I'm okay with things being imperfect.
1: Life is messy, you know? And I, I, I have a sort of an aesthetic... Well, I, I love things that are beautiful and sad. Not to say that this is beautiful and sad. I think that's not actually a, a fair description of this ending. Um, but I, I do like this this sense of things being not 100% perfect and happy at the ending.
0: That makes me think a little bit because, as you say, this is a book about relationships. It really is a relationship book. It's, you know, social science fiction or, you know, and it's, you know, it's got romantic elements in it. Um. although I mean, but you don't <laughs> deliver there's and so anytime you have anything with a little bit of romantic element it's always sort of like well where's the happily ever after and, yeah and there isn't one
1: no there's not it's just not that book you know actually that was that was kind of an, an intentional choice on my part too the idea that you have to have a romance that that resolves happily at the ending um because especially in books a uh, about women, And especially in books by women, that's kind of an expectation, a bar that you're supposed to jump over. Um, and that's not always what a character needs. That's not always the most interesting solution. So I thought I would do something that might be a little more interesting, maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe.
0: No, I agree. I think the, there was an obvious ending that you could have taken that would have put a neat little bow on everything
1: it, <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't have been true to the book. I mean it wouldn't have been true to the characters even even more so.
0: right, which is that's that's what being a a writer I mean that's what it's all about, right? And especially yeah. when you ba- when you base the book on characters, and mm-hmm. you know this is not a plot book, really. <laughs> it, it, it has a plot i'm not saying it doesn't have a plot it,
1: has pl- it even it has action there's action in this book and everything yeah, i it, swear but
0: it does hinge on sort of your your yeah. imprinting on all the various characters and i really do think you can imprint on all of them i mean even the one i mean i think one of the characters that sticks with me most closely is benji who is really not somebody that you would you would necessarily want to be the focus of the book but he he's so um believable in his uh in his in a shtick, if you will. <laughs>
1: He's just one of those guys, you know, one of those tech startup dudes. And, you, just... and
0: you've been there, right?
1: I have. I have. I've, I've worked for uh, many a startup. Um, in another life, I, I actually worked in a technology company. I spent all day elbows deep in DB2 forming complicated SQL statements and migrating servers and and on and on. Like, I, I have legit tech kinds of credibility. Um and I've, I've come to, I, I didn't realize this. Uh, I, I think I told you this earlier. Uh, I didn't realize until after I'd written the book and, and sometime later, somebody in my, in my crew group, group, actually, Will weiser in, in my writing group said that it was, a, sort of my poison pen letter to, to tech startup culture. And it kind of is <laughs> all of the ways that, that, Tech startup culture is is kind of all about money, and it's kind of self serving and fundamentally hollow and 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 I don't know this is this is sort of a a pet issue for me, all of the ways in which Silicon Valley is really aggressively solving all of the worst problems being faced by white twenty something male programmers, right and so. I mean, not not that everyone who works in Silicon Valley is a horrible person, um, but there's a sort of a systemic cultural problem going on that that winds up narrowing worldviews and making you think in particular kinds of ways and and adhering to certain kinds of coolness, uh, and, and you lose sight of the fact that the rest of the world isn't like that. Well, I mean, I, I I say I say we and I say I say I say them like it's not me, but I, I really was in that position where I didn't really realize that. The rest of the world didn't live on Twitter, but they don't, you know, regular people don't.
0: What's interesting is how much time we've spent commenting on the culture of, say, Wall Street bankers, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe not as much time spent on, you know, the, the Wall Street of California, which is, you know, Silicon Valley.
1: So, so there was, did, did you read the Dave Eggers book that came out, I think late last year, The Circle? No. I freaking loved that book. And, and a lot of people who truly are in Silicon Valley and, and live out there really hated it because they said that it wasn't true to what working in a tech startup is, is like. Um, but it really, really resonated for me in, in all, all of the sort of cultural things that, sound happy and shiny and wonderful to begin with, but become really oppressive over time. I love that book. It's, it's a fable. It's not a super realistic book in any way whatsoever. Um, but it's got that core accuracy, that that mirror to what it really is like. So buy that book. Hmm. Buy it.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I've read some stuff by uh, Douglas Copeland Has done a few books on sort of tech culture a little bit, but he's a little out there mm-hmm. in, his, in his applique of the, uh, of the medium. But no, that's interesting. I, I did not see the movie Facebook, but I felt like that was an opportunity to sort of do some work on that subject. I don't know that they did it or not. The so social you mean network, the, the social, social network? network yeah. yeah.
1: That was a brilliant movie, actually. So, (laughs) I'm going to tell you why I loved that movie. I I came into it completely hating Zuckerberg for uh, eroding privacy rights, for being kind of a horrible human being as far as I I knew anything about him. And I actually came out of that book respecting him and what he had built in a way that I hadn't before. It, It didn't redeem his policies to me, but it made me understand and have compassion for him as a human being and, and realized that he made the choices that he had to make within the framework of, of decision-making you know, available to him. Um, but I, there's, there's no true villain, really, right? Nobody is evil on purpose for the sake of being evil. Even, even Zuckerberg is not evil for the sake of being evil. He's done things that have bad effects for people, but I think even he is trying it's just that his worldview doesn't always allow him to see that evil. You
0: know, at the end of the day, somebody that's working on verity, that's working on this thing, they can they can change the the course of someone's life the way that it can. I mean, at the end of the day, they still think that that ability can be used to do good things and will only be used to do good things.
1: And it definitely could be used to do good things if you if you think about having that power. There are. Definitely great things you could do. You could, you know, do all kinds of helping to bring to justice, you know, all of, all of these police, I guess, that are shooting people. That's the horrible issue of the day. Um, you could, you you could, you could persuade the world to be not quite so horrible in whatever the direction is that your politics say, um, Oh, but, but, that, that's but,
0: the key phrase, right?
1: Right, but that's that's exactly that's the key phrase. What you think is the utopia, isn't what somebody else is going to think is the utopia. Alas.
0: Could you imagine the power of verity in the hands of of the rabid puppies? Oh,
1: good God!
0: <laughs> <laughs> or, or alternatively, you know, in the hands of the of the secret lefty cabal that uh,
1: yeah, that has yeah,
0: owned things thus far. No, I. It all depends on perspective.
1: It really does. So that's, that's a a thing I've noticed a lot. I, I write short fiction from time to time and I write character drama, actually a lot like this that happens to exist in futuristic sci-fi settings with artificial intelligence and blah, blah, blah. Um, And when I write them, I consider them interesting character moments in a fundamentally utopian world. And then I get all of these people telling me what a horrible dystopia I've written and how horrible it would be to have XYZ condition. Like, but I think it was nice because, you know, in these worlds, there's nobody hungry and everybody has the time to pursue the things that they would like that makes them happy. Um, but, but people get stuck on, you know, I think it would be really horrible to have Something, you know, an AI in my head, they can talk to me all the time. What if it got hacked? And that's a, that's a fair kind of worry. It's a fair concern. What if it got hacked? That would be pretty horrible. Um, but on, on the upside, you know, that, that idea of, you know, perfect parenting or, or whatever is, is alluring at the same time. So mm-hmm. basically there's no way that, that the world will ever be completely wonderful because it will always be horrible in a way that we have made it to be horrible. Mm.
0: Well, all of that goes to say we have we have talked about all the heavy shit in this book, uh, but it's really it doesn't read that heavy. It is actually a very um, quick and entertaining novel that um, I think manages to get you thinking about all of these things without realizing it, uh, which is I think uh, a great compliment to the novel that it uh, it can it does this great bit of entertaining. In a relatively short amount of time, that uh, that when you're done with it, you say, "Oh, that made me think about a lot of things that uh, I didn't I didn't necessarily think I was going to be thinking about."
1: Thank you, thank you. I hate the idea of being heavy-handed. I don't want to be uh, uh, writing a message book as such. And if if someone happens to take a message, then that's great, but I want it to stand on its own as something not trying to sell you on a particular perspective.
0: Uh, Revision is out on May the 5th. People can uh, get it in places where people sell books. So I'm told. So so you're told. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Rocket Talk. It was great, great fun.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're wonderful.
0: This has been Rocket Talk.